Section 15 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 9, European Statesmen, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. George the Fourth, Part Three. The next subject of historical importance in the reign of George the Fourth was the perpetual agitation among the people growing out of their misery and discontent. There were no great insurrections to overturn a throne, as in Spain and Italy and France but there was a fierce demand for the removal of evils which were intolerable, and this was manifested in monster petitions to Parliament, in incendiary speeches like those made by Orator Hunt and other agitators, in such political tracts as Cobbett wrote and circulated in every corner of the land, in occasional uprisings among agricultural laborers and factory operatives, in angry mobs destroying private property, all impelled by hunger and despair. To these discontents and angry uprisings the government was haughty and cold, looking upon them as revolutionary and dangerous, and putting them down by sheriffs and soldiers, by coercion bills and the suspension of the act of habeas corpus. Some speeches were made in Parliament in favor of education, and some efforts in behalf of law reforms, especially the removal of the death penalty for small offenses, more than two hundred of which were punishable with death. Numerous were the instances where men and boys were condemned to the gallows for stealing a coat or shooting a hare, but the sentences of judges were often not enforced when unusually severe or unjust. Moreover, large charities were voted for the poor, but without materially relieving the general distress. On the whole, however, the country increased in wealth and prosperity in consequence of the long and uninterrupted peace, and the only great drawback was the mercantile crisis of 1825 resulting from the mania of speculation, and followed by the contraction of the currency, the effect of which was the failure of banks and the ruin of thousands who had calculated on being suddenly enriched. Allison estimates the shrinkage of property in Great Britain alone as at least one hundred million pounds. Men worth one hundred thousand pounds could not at one time raise one hundred pounds. The banks were utterly drained of gold and silver. Nothing prevented universal bankruptcy but the issue of small bills by the Bank of England. There was a lull of political excitement after the trial of Queen Caroline, and Parliament confined itself chiefly to legal, economical, and commercial questions, although occasionally there were grand debates on the foreign policy, on Catholic emancipation, and on the disfranchisement of corrupt boroughs. Ireland obtained considerable parliamentary attention, owing to the failure of the potato crop and its attendant agricultural distress which produced a state bordering on rebellion, and to the formation of the Catholic Association. But the great event in the political history of England during the reign of George the Fourth was unquestionably the removal of Catholic disabilities, ranking next in importance and interest with the Reform Bill and the repeal of the Corn Laws. Catholic disability had existed ever since the reign of Elizabeth, and was the standing injustice under which Ireland labored. Catholic peers were not admitted to the House of Lords, nor Catholics to a seat in the House of Commons, which was a condition of extremely unequal representation. In reality, only the Protestants were represented in Parliament, and they composed only about one-tenth of the whole population. In addition to this injustice, the Irish, who were mostly Roman Catholic, were ground down by such oppressive laws that they were really serfs to those landlords who owned the soil on which they toiled for a mere pittance about four pence a day, resulting in a general poverty such as has never before been seen in any European country, with its attendant misery and crime. 
the miserable irish peasantry lived in mud huts or cabins covered partially with thatch but not enough to keep out the rain no furniture and no comforts were to be seen in these huts there were no chairs or tables only a sort of dresser for laying a plate upon no cooking utensils but a cast metal pot to boil potatoes almost the only food there were no bedsteads and but few blankets the people slept in their clothes the whole family generally in one room the only room in the cabin for fuel they burned peat in order to pay their rent they sold their pigs beggars infested every road and filled every village no one was certain of employment even at two pence a day everybody was controlled by the priests whose power rested on their ability to stimulate religious fears and who were supported by such contributions as they were able to extort from the superstitious and ignorant people by nature brave and generous and joyous but improvident and reckless it was the wonder of o'connell how they could remain cheerful amid such privations and such wrongs with the government seemingly indifferent and none to pity and few to help nor could they vote for the candidates for any office whatever unless they had freeholds or life-rent possessions for which they paid a rent of forty shillings the landlords of this wretched tenantry unable to face the misery they saw and which they could not relieve or fearful of assassination left the country to spend their incomes in the great cities of europe not being united with their people by any ties social or religious what wonder that such a wretched people urged by the priests should form associations for their own relief especially when famine pressed and landlords exacted the uttermost farthing when the crimes to which they were impelled by starvation were punished with the most inexorable severity by protestant magistrates in whose appointment they had no hand the result was the rise of the catholic association the declared object of which was to forward petitions to parliament to support an independent press to aid emigration to america all worthy and unobjectionable on the surface but with the real intent as affirmed by the tories and believed by a large majority of the nation of securing the control of elections of bringing about the repeal of the union with england which enacted in eighteen o one had done away with the separate irish parliament the resumption of the church property by the catholic clergy and the restoration of the catholic faith as the dominant religion of the land such an association embracing most of the roman catholic population was regarded with great alarm by the government and they determined to put it down as seditious and dangerous against the expostulation of such men as brougham mackintosh and sir henry parnell then arose the great figure of o'connell in the history of ireland whose eloquence tact and ability have no parallel in that country of orators defending the cause of his countrymen with masterly power leading them like a second moses according to his will in fact uniting them in a movement which it was hopeless to expose except with an army bent on the depopulation of the country so that george the fourth is reported to have said with considerable bitterness canning is king of england o'connell is king of ireland and i am dean of windsor such however was the hostility of parliament to the irish catholics that a bill was carried by a great majority in both houses to suppress the association supported powerfully by the duke of york as well as by the ministers of the crown even by canning himself and sir robert peel then followed renewed disturbances riots and murders for the condition of the roman catholics in ireland was desperate as well as gloomy the association was dissolved for o'connell would do nothing unlawful but a new one took its place which preached peace and unity but which meant the repeal of the union the grand object that from first to last o'connell had at heart 
of course this scheme was utterly impracticable without a revolution that would shake england to its centre but it was followed by an immense emigration to america so great that the population of ireland declined from eight and a half to four and a half millions irish catholics however were comparatively quiet during the administration of mr canning whose liberal tendencies had given them hope but on his death they became more restive the coalition ministry under lord goderick was much embarrassed how to act or was too feeble to act with vigor not for want of individual abilities but by reason of dissensions among the ministers it lasted only a short time and was succeeded by that of the duke of wellington with sir robert peel for his lieutenant both of whom had shown an intense prejudice and dislike of the irish catholics and had voted uniformly for their repression on the return of the tories to power the irish disturbances were renewed and increased hitherto the landlords had directed the votes of their tenantry the forty shilling freeholders but now the elections were determined by the direction of the catholic association which was controlled by the priests and by o'connell and his associates in addition o'connell himself was elected to represent in english parliament the county of clare against the whole weight of the government which was a bitter pill for the tories to swallow especially as the great agitator declared his intention to take his seat without submitting to the customary oath it was in reality a defiance of the government backed by the whole irish nation the catholics became so threatening they came together so often and in such enormous masses that the nation was thoroughly alarmed the king and a majority of his ministers urged the most violent coercive measures even to the suspension of habeas corpus o'connell was not admitted to parliament but his case precipitated an intense turmoil which settled the question for ever for then the great general who had defeated napoleon and was the idol of the nation seeing the difficulties of coercion as no other statesman did and influenced by sir robert peel for whom he had unbounded respect made one of his masterly retreats by which he averted revolution and bloodshed wellington hated the catholics and was a most loyal member of the church of england moreover he was a tory and an ultra conservative but at last even his eyes were opened not to the injustices and wrongs which ground ireland to the dust but to the necessity of conciliation like peel he could face facts and when his path was clear he would walk therein whatever kings or ministers or peers or people might think or say he resolved to emancipate the catholics as sir robert peel afterward repealed the corn laws against all his antecedents and affiliations and sympathies and more than all against the declared wishes and resolutions of the monarch whom he nominally served yet whom he controlled by his iron will sir robert peel as obstinate a tory as his chief had been for some time convinced of the necessity of conciliation and at once resigned his seat as the representative of oxford university which he felt he could no longer honorably hold in march eighteen twenty nine he brought forward his bill for the removal of catholic disabilities which was read the third time and passed the commons by a majority of one hundred seventy eight in the house of peers it was carried by a majority of one hundred four so great was the influence of wellington and peel so impressed at last were both houses of the necessity for the measure the difficulty now was to obtain the signature of the king although he had promised it as the probable alternative of revolution a great state necessity which his ministers had made him at last perceive but to which he reluctantly yielded he was somewhat in the position of pope clement the fourteenth when obliged against his will and against the interests of the catholic church to sign the bull for the revocation of the charter of the jesuits compulsus feci compulsus feci he exclaimed with mental agony 
George the Fourth could have said the same. He procrastinated. He lay all day in bed to avoid seeing his ministers. He talked of his feelings. He threatened to abdicate and go to Hanover. He would not violate his conscience. He would be faithful to the traditions of his house and the memory of his father, and so on until the patience of Wellington and Peel was exhausted, and they told him he must sign the bill at once, or they would immediately resign. The king could no longer wriggle off the hook, and surrendered. O'Connell was instantly re-elected, and took his seat in Parliament, a position which he occupied for the rest of his life. George the Fourth was the last of the monarchs of England who attempted to rule by a personal government. Henceforward the monarch's duty was simply to register the decrees of Parliament. But the admission of Catholics to Parliament did not heal the disorders of Ireland, as had been hoped. The Irish clamored for still greater privileges. The cry for repeal of the Union succeeded that for the removal of disabilities. Their poverty and miseries remained, while their monster meetings continued to shake the kingdom to its center. The historical importance of Catholic emancipation consists in this, that it was the first great victory over the aristocratic powers of the empire, and was an entrance wedge to the reform of Parliament effected in the next reign it threw forty or fifty members of the house of commons into the ranks of opposition to the tory side which with a few brief intervals had governed england for a century the reform movement was the child of catholic agitation the anti-corn law league that of the triumph of reform brougham was the legitimate successor of o'connell a foresight of such consequences was the real cause of the movement being so bitterly opposed by the king and lord eldon it was not jealousy of the catholics that moved them that was only the pretense. It was really fear of the blow aimed against Toryism. They had sagacity enough to see the inevitable result, the advancing power of the Liberal Party and the impossibility of longer ruling the country without ceding privileges to the people. The repeal of the Test Act by the previous administration, which removed the disabilities of dissenters from the established church to hold public office, was only another act in the great drama of national development which was to give ascendancy to the middle class in matters of legislation rather than to the favored classes who had hitherto ruled the movement was political and not religious whatever might be the hatred of the tories for both catholics and dissenters nothing further of political importance marked the administration of the duke of wellington except the increasing agitations for parliamentary reform which will be hereafter considered wellington was elevated to his exalted post from the influence and popularity which followed his military achievements his fame like that of general grant rests on his military and not on his civil services, although his great experience as a diplomatist and general made him far from contemptible as a statesman. It was his misfortune to hold the helm of state in stormy times, amid riots, agitations, insurrections, and party dissensions, amid famines and public distresses of every kind. When England was going through a transition state, when there was every shade of opinion among political leaders, the Duke, like Canning before him, was isolated and felt the need of a friend. He was not like a commander-in-chief surrounded with a band of devoted generals, but with ministers held together by a rope of sand. He had no real colleagues in his cabinet, and no party in the House of Commons. The chief troubles in England were financial rather than political, and he had no head for finance like Huskinson and Sir Robert Peel. In the midst of the difficulties with which the great duke had to contend, George the Fourth died, June 26, 1830. He was in his latter days a great sufferer from the gout and other diseases brought about by the debaucheries of his earlier days, and he was a disenchanted man, living long enough to see how frail were the supports on which he had leaned—friends, pleasures, and exalted rank. All authorities are agreed as to the character of George the Fourth, though some in their immeasurable contempt have painted him worse than he really was, like Brougham and Thackeray. 
Aller agreed that he was selfish and pleasure-seeking in his ordinary life, though courteous in his manners and kind to those who shared his revels. As dissipated habits obtained the mastery over him, and the unbounded flattery of his boon companions stultified his conscience, he became heartless and even brutal. He was proud and overbearing, was fond of pomp and ceremony, and ultra-conservative in all his political views. He was outrageously extravagant and reckless in his expenditures, and then appealed to Parliament to pay his debts. He liked to visit his favorites, and received visits from them in return so long as his physical forces remained. But when these were hopelessly undermined by self-indulgence, he buried himself in his palaces and rarely appeared in public. Indeed, his latter days he shunned the sight of the people altogether. His character appears better in his letters than in the verdicts of historians. Those written to his Chancellor Eldon, to the Duke of Wellington, to Lord Liverpool, to Sir William Knighton, Keeper of the Privy Purse, and others, show great cordiality, frankness, and the utter absence of the stiffness and pride incident to his high rank. They abound in expressions of kindness and even affection, whether sincere or not. They are all well written and would do credit, from a literary point of view, to any private person. His talents in conversation, his wit and repartee, and his felicitous description of character are undeniable. He is said to have had the talent of telling stories to perfection. His powers of mimicry were remarkable, and he was fond of singing songs at his banquets. Had he been simply a private person, or an ordinary nobleman, he would have been far from contemptible. The latter days of George the Fourth were sad, and for a king he was left comparatively alone. He had neither wife nor children to lean upon and to cheer him, only mercenary courtiers and physicians. His tastes were refined, his manners affable, and his conversation interesting. He was intelligent, sagacious, and well-informed, yet no English monarch was ever more cordially despised. The governing principle of his life was a love of ease and pleasure, which made him negligent of his duties. And there never yet lived a man, however exalted his sphere, who had not imperative duties to perform, without the performance of which his life was a failure and a reproach. So it was with this unhappy king, who died like Louis the Fifteenth, without anyone to mourn his departure, and a new king reigned in his stead. And yet the reign of the fourth George as king was marked by returning national prosperity, owing not to the efforts of statesmen and legislators, but to the marvellous spread of commerce and manufactures, resulting from the establishment of peace, thus opening a market for British goods in all parts of the world. This period of the fourth George's rule as regent and king was also remarkable for the appearance of men of genius in all departments of human thought and action. As the lights of a former generation sank beneath the horizon, other stars arose of increased brilliancy. In poetry alone, Byron, Scott, Rogers, Coleridge, Southey, Wordsworth, Moore, Campbell, Keats, would have made the age illustrious, a constellation such as has not appeared. In fiction, Sir Walter Scott introduced a new era, soon followed by Bulwer, Dickens, and Thackeray. In the law there were Brougham, Eldon, Lyndhurst, Ellenborough, Denman, Plunkett, Erskine, Wetherall, all men of the first class. In medicine and surgery were Abernathy, Cooper, Holland. In the church were Parr, Clark, Hampton, Scott, Sumner, Hall, Arnold, Irving, Chalmers, Heber, Waitley, Newman. Sir Humphrey Davy was presiding at the Royal Society and Sir Thomas Lawrence at the Royal Academy. Herschel was discovering planets. Bell was lecturing at the new London University, and Dugald Stewart in the University of Edinburgh. Captain Ross was exploring the northern seas, and Lander the wilds of Africa. Lancaster was founding a new system of education. Bentham and Ricardo were unraveling the tangled web of political economy. Hallam, Lingard, 
Mitford, Mills were writing history. Macaulay, Carlyle, Smith, Lockhart, Jeffrey, Hazlitt were giving a new stimulus to periodical literature, while Miss Edgeworth, Jane Porter, Mrs. Hemans were entering the field of literature as critics, poets, and novelists, instead of putting their inspired thoughts into letters, as bright women did one hundred years before. Into everything there were found some to cast their searching glances, creating an intellectual activity without previous precedent. If we accept the great theological discussions of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, even shopkeepers began to read and think, and in their dingy quarters were stirred to discuss their rights, while William Cobbett aroused a still lower class to political activity by his matchless style. All philanthropic, educational, and religious movements received a wonderful stimulus, while improvements in the use of steam, mechanical inventions, chemical developments, and scientific discoveries were rapidly changing the whole material condition of mankind. In 1820, when the regent became George IV, a new era opened in English history, most observable in those popular agitations which ushered in reforms under his successor, William IV. These it will be my object to present in another volume. Authorities Crowley's Life of George IV Thackeray's Four Georges Annual Register Life of the Duke of Wellington Life of Canning Life of Lord Liverpool Life of Lord Brougham Miss Martineau's History of England Life of Mackintosh Life of Sir Robert Peel Allison's History of Europe Life of Lord Eldon Life of O'Connell Molesworth's History of England End of section 15